Hi there, this is Sam from the future. If you're listening to this episode, you're about to embark on Quenya Questions in Quarantine, where my friend Raleigh makes his way through the Silmarillion for the very first time, and I do my best to guide him along the way. Before you barrel ahead, just a quick disclaimer. The quality of these episodes only gets better as you go. Let's just say that when we first started out, our skills as audio producers were not quite up to par with our considerable enthusiasm for Tolkien and for this story. Looking back now, those issues really stick out, and it's hard to know that you may form a judgment of the show, and even worse, the Silmarillion itself, based on these early episodes before Raleigh and I really got our act together. Believe me, we did, and that comes with big improvements about the audio quality and the overall quality of each subsequent episode. I guess what I'm saying is, if you want to jump on this quest through the messy, wonderful story of the Silmarillion with us, stick with it. It gets better and better, and we're so excited to have you along for the ride. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Quenya Questions in Quarantine, the show where my friend Raleigh tries to read the Silmarillion for the first time, and I try and help him along the way. We're uh, very happy to have you in this world of social distancing and keeping in our various houses, and we thought that this would be the way to bring our time-filled activities at home to your perhaps isolated households across the podcast sphere. Raleigh, do I have you online? Yeah, I'm here, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for doing this because, man, do I have a lot of questions. Well, awesome. As you probably know, if you've clicked on this podcast, we are trying to read through the Silmarillion, a text by J.R.R. Tolkien and edited after J.R.R. died by his son, Christopher. That is excellent, in my opinion, and it's actually one of my favorite books, but is incredibly dense. In fact, on the back cover of my text, I have a quote from Time magazine that says, this is a cosmology of medieval romances, fierce fairy tales, and fiercer wars that ring with heraldic fury, dot, dot, dot. It overwhelms the reader. (laughs) I think it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there for the back jacket quote, because it can be quite complex to make it through, but there really are some hidden gems along the way. Raleigh, I guess let's start out with what made you want to read the Silmarillion and what made you think that this might be the, the way to go about it? Well, yeah, so I've loved the Lord of the Rings since 2001 when I was in fifth grade and the Fellowship of the Ring came out. I read the Fellowship right after I seen the first movie the first time and then read the Two Towers right before the Two Towers movie came out and then Return of the King before the Return of the King movie came out. But then really took a a big pause on reading Tolkien's works for, well, I guess about 10 years until now. So I read The Hobbit in February and now figured if there's any time to actually read The Silmarillion, now's the time to do it. Always been interested in the history of Middle Earth, but never really known anything about it. And... Now I have some questions and we're in quarantine, so let's get those answered. All right. Awesome. That sounds like the way to do it. If you're bored at home or otherwise limited, nothing like cracking into a dense book. So I'm, I'm all about it and I'm here to help as much as I can. 
what Raleigh and I have planned is we're going to read through the book together and stop at certain points. So Raleigh has read a short section at the beginning of The Silmarillion. I've read the same one, and we're going to talk about it and move episode by episode along the way. Anyone listening at home, you're welcome to read along with us. I'd encourage it, but otherwise just listen for the crazy tales told through us, which is you'll learn the relaying of information rather than getting it firsthand. It's actually a big part of the Silmarillion and Tolkien more generally. So you might fit that pathway and you don't have to feel yourself just to be a lazy person who's listening to the podcast about something that they haven't actually read. <laughs> <laughs> so Raleigh and I read the beginning section of the book, which is about six or seven pages. It's called the Aina Lundale. Pronunciation never guaranteed to be correct from either Definitely part. Definitely not. <laughs> but that stands for the music of the Ainur. And I think that's just go straight into our first Raleigh recap. Raleigh, what the heck happened in this section? Well, I asked that same question when I first read it. I, <laughs> there, in my version, there are six pages to this chapter, and it took me about 45 minutes to read the first time through. I had to reread every passage at least twice. And once I read through the first time, I immediately ran through and read it all over again for a second time. So well, we can appreciate your tenacity. So I was quite confused, but here's what I have for you. So first there is an almighty God named Uru, but that must be some other language because in Arda, which I guess is the earth, he is known as Ilubitar. And so Ilubitar wants to start playing some music. So he's playing music with some of his, I guess, underlings, maybe his friends, and so they're playing music, having a grand old time. It's in some sort of like void absent of any real uh, beings or meaning. I personally picture it just like a big white room where there's uh, nothing in a pre-Big Bang situation. But uh, they're playing for a while. And then all of a sudden, Melkor, who seems like a real bad hombre, starts to play a new theme. And so these themes, I guess, are like symphonies or just songs and Melkor wants to play a new one to sort of like assert dominance. But once, once he starts playing his and is becoming a stronger being, Ilubitar then plays a third one on his own. And once he does this, he is now creating the beginning of the earth and the elves and men are eventually born. How was that? I think that's a great start. This beginning section is, there's a bit of a abstractness to it that I think you're grappling with nicely. I mean, you're right. It's basically like a primordial jam session. <laughs> there's the god Iluvatar and all of his, yeah, kind of like the, the beings that represent his thought, right? So he basically created his own friends, I guess, because he was lonely. And then they all start singing together in Melkor, one of those beings who is an Ainur, that's what these thought god people are like, wants to kind of cut in and make his own jam go solo and kind of take some of the band with him. So he starts uh, going off by himself and then it kind of creates this first tension in this time before there is a physical world. So they're fighting over music, right? <laughs> yeah, they're fighting over music and also just through music. All that exists at this point in the universe is music and the singing. And so Melkor decides to 
instead of going with the music that everybody else is playing and that Aluvatar has kind of set them to, he thinks, well, like, well, what if I try and, like, throw in a little, like, uh, maracas in there, right? <laughs> try and mess with it, and I'll become the lead singer, right? Maybe he was, like, the, the grudging bassist of this band, and he wants to all of a sudden become the, you know, the Freddie Mercury. Okay, okay, so he's going through his uh, teenage angst phase and trying to win battle the yes, bands. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so the result of this is this power struggle, and while Iluvatar comes out on top, what he reveals to Melkor, as well as all of the other Ainur near the end of the section, is that their music will create and is creating the Earth. This music has power, and it is making Arda, which is Tolkien's word for the Earth that will eventually become Middle-Earth. And so then all of the Ainur are like, wow, look at this cool place we made. And many of them decide to go actually move away from this void space where they are and go live on Arda, on the planet, and start to keep making it or remake it better. And then Melkor goes down there and just starts messing with stuff. (laughs) Basically, he's jealous about what they're doing. And so it's like they build a mountain and he levels it or they like build a, a valley and he raises it up. He just is being a little poo. And at, at the end of the chapter, the elves and men haven't appeared yet on the earth, but Iluvatar has shown all of the Ainur that they eventually will, that elves and men will come down and appear. And so what the, the job is of these Ainur who go live in Arda is to make the world ready for elves and men because the elves and men are going to be the children of Iluvatar, the one god, and the elves and men will be the only thing that the Ainur didn't help create with their music. They're a totally separate kind of being, and the Ainur are curious about those beings. Okay. The Ainur that decide to go live in Arda, this is like a, a classic Tolkien link come up with two words where maybe one would do. But so not all of these Ainur, these demigods, come live on the earth. Some of them stay up above. But the ones that do come down are called not the Ainur anymore, but the Valar. And that's going to be the term that they go by for most of the rest of the text. And so where we leave the section, I guess, is, as you said, there is a world. It's in the very early stages. And one of the gods... Among many gods who lives down there, Melkor is opposed to all the other ones and still trying to go his own way and make his own jam session that's better than everybody else's. Okay, so that helps a ton. <laughs> because, <laughs> okay, good. honestly, I could probably read it a third time and still have better clarity, but hearing you walk through that at least saved me two readings, so that was huge. Well, good. Well, happy to help. I guess what I wanted to ask you, Raleigh, is how you kind of feel about this technique for, you know, this is Tolkien, like, trying to tell the story of creation. This is the Bible of his world that the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit take place in, but that extends well beyond them. And just, like, what kind of make of, like, music being the vehicle for it and there being all these gods and just kind of how that all plays out? Uh, Yeah, so... In terms of connections to Lord of the Rings, it's so abstract that I almost feel like it's not the same world right now. I mean, we're, we don't see any Aragorns. We don't see any Gimli's. 
So in that respect, I kind of feel like knowing what happens to Gandalf and how he's reborn, at least in Peter Jackson's rendition, he's reborn in this great big ball of white light. And so that's kind of how I, I see the, the way that this world is starting off. So you're basically sitting there in nothingness and all of a sudden you're there, you're alive. I think that's a great connection to make. I think in the next chapter, we're going to learn about the Valar. So these gods who have come down to earth, they have various lesser spirits who help them out, who are called the Maiar. And we'll learn that Gandalf and the wizards are Maiar. So very close to the Valar, just not quite as top-notch. Maybe more like the Valar's roadies, particularly <laughs> okay. band analogy. Or the backup singers or something. Okay, yeah, like so that, they're, right? they're part of the band, they help out, but if the real band went away, they would lose all their <laughs> ability to make the music okay. and make things happen. When you talk about the abstractness of the story, I think you're totally right. We don't have any... No, there's no context whatsoever no, going on here. Yeah, yeah, we don't have any descriptions of people, really, especially before they come down to Arda. We don't get a great sense of who Iluvatar is. He's just kind of this all-knowing god. I do want to point to one of the ways that I think really helps me understand when I get frustrated by the complexity of the text or when things don't always seem to line up. I think that some of that is a product of Christopher Tolkien editing his father's writing after his father died. That's a complicated thing to do, and it's hard to honor all of his father's kind of scattered writings over decades without some tonal shifts that get confusing. But the other way to think about it is this issue of translation and transmission that Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, as well as Christopher, are like all about <laughs> in their stories. So the last page of this story that I'm a loon delay, in the last paragraph it says, what has here been declared is come from the Valar themselves with whom the Eldelie spoke in the land of Valinor and by whom they were instructed, but little would the Valar ever tell of the wars before the coming of the elves. So there's several proper nouns in there that we haven't talked about yet. Valinor and Eldelie. Eldelie here just basically means the elves. The important part is that Tolkien likes to provide a way that we know this information, right? Like we're talking about the beginning of the world when there was Iluvatar and they were doing this big old jam session. But he likes to think, well, how would we know that to be able to write it down in a book called The Silmarillion within the story itself? And so the, his answer to that is like, oh, the Valar, after the elves appear, told the elves about it. And so that's why we know this. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? What's interesting about that is, one, they probably didn't tell the elves everything. In fact, here it explicitly says they didn't tell them. Little would the Valar ever tell of the wars before the coming of the elves. So already we're like, even this story that we have is not the whole story, and it never really will be because only the gods know the answer. <laughs> and two, it makes you think of, like, picture you are one of these Valar, you existed before time existed, when basically all it was was you, your other buddies in the band, Melkor, who's trying to go solo, and Iluvatar, your, like, daddy god. And that's all there is. And you, like, somehow created the earth, and now you're on the earth, and you're trying to explain to an elf who lives on the earth what that was like. And the answer would be, it's impossible. Yeah, how can I just... How can I explain a world? Yeah, yeah how do I explain the void when... 
I don't really even understand it. Yeah. So there's this issue of translation, right? Where like I have to tell the elves, and then obviously the elves have to one, we have to speak the same language, then we have to translate it, then we have to write this thing down. So already we have a couple of ways in that the text that we're physically reading in the book called The Silmarillion by Christopher Tolkien is slanted, right? Like this is the truth as best we have it for the story, but it's not exactly what happened. And I think that's kind of a cool way. And so in that way, like things like the music that's creating the earth, like that doesn't make sense (laughs) to us, right? But it's a way of explaining to a people who understand music and the power of art and letting them get the gist of what's going on, even if that's not like literally, literally how the world came. Okay, so in like The Hobbit, it's told from Bilbo's point of view, telling Frodo how his travels went. Is it the same idea yeah. where it's now we are potentially Bilbo, but just adult Bilbo, and we're receiving that story from the <laughs> yeah. elves now? Yeah, so not that exact path, but the exact same kind of transmission. In The Lord of the Rings, it's the same thing. Remember that Bilbo and Frodo have that right, book, yeah. big red book, which is where first Bilbo writes his story in there, then Frodo writes his story. And then even we learn in the appendices and whatnot for The Lord of the Rings that that book was originally written in the quote-unquote like halfling language. And then eventually somebody had to translate that to English or to whatever language you're reading The Lord of the Rings in. (laughs) So like actually the Hobbit's names were nothing like Sam and Frodo and Mary and Pippin and Bilbo, but they were these like really weird, complicated names in their original thing. And we've just translated them to make it make sense for the modern reader. Uh, A similar thing is happening here. Remember J.R. Tolkien was an expert in languages and studying really old texts, things that the the way you translate things really matters. And also you can get closer and closer to the real meaning, but you can never quite get all the way there. What I like, (laughs) I mean, that can be a frustrating (laughs) thought, obviously. It's like, come on, tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah, you created the world. (laughs) But what I like about it is, one, it means when you can't quite grasp something, you can just be like, okay, I want to try and capture the feeling of it, even if I can't quite get exactly what's going on. So then, now that you're bringing up the idea of like translations are never the exact same as a story, I almost wonder if it's he didn't have the entire way that Middle Earth was created written up in his head yet. So it just had this as a placeholder. That could be. I feel like it's more like that he is trying to explain creation, explain the beginning of the universe, however you want to think of it. But given that he is a man, explaining it in a way that we would understand. You know what I mean? What's our language to explain what there was before the Big Bang? We don't necessarily have the words to say literally what's going on. So it's a way of trying to get at the truth or meaning without having Right, having okay, so it's like how basically. Inuits have, I don't know, like 60 different w- ways to say snow, and we have two, like snow and sleep. Yeah, kind of like that, right? And the, the language you're speaking in matters. That also makes me think of another thing about this music and I was thinking about this today because we're talking about this section. I hadn't thought about it before. And I was just trying to think, like, 
why like Tolkien wasn't necessarily like a musical person or had a big musical background. Music plays a big part in his stories, right? Like he's wrote all these poems, but it's an interesting way to think about the beginning of the world in just like a bunch of people basically singing together. And I think that what I like about that is that it's trying to show how if you take music as a representation of art or of creative energy, it's a way to show the real power of creativity and improvisation and kind of originality in art to really get things done. Like they sang a bunch of songs and then, oh my God, here's the earth because we sang that song. And in a way, that's the same thing that Tolkien did throughout his life in terms of writing these stories, right? <laughs> like what is the purpose of fantasy fiction or any kind of fiction for that matter, except to get at the truth in a way that's not actually telling the truth. And I think that's kind of the, what the music is. Okay. Doing yeah, that's a, that's a better way or a nicer way to think about it, I think. We'll see that the music will continue to play a part in the, the story, not in quite as powerful a way as it does here. Raleigh, what other questions did you have? Okay, so more about the actual uh, passages we read here. So in terms of like a timeline, are we in the, uh, the first age from the get-go, yeah. or does the first age start when the elves are born? Here we can safely say we're in a pre-time space, and I believe that the concept of time and the counting of the ages doesn't come until the elves are created, because before that we're kind of living in a world of gods where there's no real need for a night and day clock. And as you'll see, the, the gods in the, in the next couple chapters are going to go through a couple different versions of what night and day looks like <laughs> on their way before they manage to set a sort of consistent clock by that, that measure. So I think we're okay. still pretty so if we're in the, going back to the Bible, are we still in like the seven days that God created the world kind of situation? Yeah. That's how I like to think about it, right? Like the gods are still in the process of making the rivers and making air and pretty soon we'll start being creatures or, you know, yeah, we're kind of in the formative period, which I think unlike the seven days is stretched out a little bit more in the summer. Okay. That's a, that's good to keep in mind as we move forward then. So I guess a question more diving into the nitty gritty details during the second theme, which is, I believe, Melkor's theme, they mention a couple characters, Ulmo being one of them and Manwe being another. So are these other gods similar to Melkor and just not as destructive, or are they more powerful or less powerful than Melkor? Yeah, great question. So yes, they're also Ainur, and then because both Olmo, Manwe, and also Melkor all go down to Arda, they all become the Valar. So we know that Melkor, in a certain way, is the most powerful. In a world we live in now, where everything's about kind of like the Star Wars and the Marvel comic universe or whatever, it's like, it's easy to try and rank people on just raw PowerPoints or you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the over 9,000 scale. <laughs> and I don't think it's always going to work like that here, but we do know, oh, here we go. To Melkor among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. So that means he alone has pieces of other people's power as well. And we're going to learn more about two of those other very powerful Valar 
Manway and Olmo, who you mentioned in the next section. So I won't go into too much detail there, but yes, those are also Valar. They're very powerful and they will be key players against Melkor in the struggle over okay. Arda okay. going forward. So somewhere it mentions women versus men of these Ainur. So presumably there's going to be different genders and more Einar than we, we've met so far. So how many are there in total? And are they introduced any easier for the reader than Ulmo and Manaway, who just pop up randomly <laughs> in a sentence? Great question, Raleigh. And it gives me a hint at our next episode, which will be the second chapter, if we can call it a chapter, of um, the Silmarillion. It's called the Valaquenta, which basically is the listing of the Valar. <laughs> which are the gods and giving their stats breakdown for each of them. That's the glass half full. We're going to get details in a, in an organized manner about these gods. Glass half empty. I think there are 14. Okay. <laughs> going to have to start making some family trees here. Um, so. Some of them being more important than others. Manway, Olmo, Melkor, very important. There are ones who take the shape of women. The story is kind of gives it this idea that the gods, when they want, can kind of just disappear and be nothing. Or if they want, they can take the shapes of things. And since they have seen the vision of elves and men, even though elves and men don't exist yet, those are the shapes that they take when they want to. But I think we'll get into that a little more next time. I was thinking that we might just quickly talk about one more passage before we head off for okay. today's uh, first go. This is about the themes, right? The first, second, third theme that you mentioned that Iluvatar leads and the Melkor counter proposes. And this is when, for the first time, Melkor has kind of come back at him in a little bit. And it says, Iluvatar arose and the Einar perceived that he smiled and he lifted up his left hand and a new theme began amid the storm, like and yet unlike to the former theme, and it gathered power and had new beauty. But the discord of Melkor rose in uproar and contended with it. Again there was war of sound, more violent than before, until many of the Einar were dismayed and sang no longer, and Melkor had the mastery. So this is the part that I wanted to focus on, given that background here. It says... Then again, Iluvatar arose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern. So first of all, he's like, all right, he was smiling before about all this music, but all of a sudden he's like, okay, <laughs> this is my band. Sit down, please. So then Iluvatar, he lifts up his right hand, and behold, exclamation point. A third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds in delicate melodies, but it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed at last that there were two musics progressing at one through before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. So then kind of like this battle goes on, but because of this third theme, the strife arises and Iluvatar kind of has to stop the music completely. What I kind of was reminded of in that third theme, Raleigh, the one that was at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate mm -hmm. melodies, but it could not be quenched. <laughs> it really made me think of the freaking hobbits. That it's like, this is a very Lord of the Rings echo here in the terms of like, in the Lord of the Rings, right? It's like Sauron, the evil menacing force is fighting against like 
these elves we don't really understand and like who is Aragorn and what's up with his lineage and the wizards are in there and there's just these huge battles, but it all comes down to just like the little boys from the Shire who like are just trying to do their darndest. <laughs> and I think that that's a little bit of it. And that's a popular thing in Tolkien, right? Like about, you know, if the hobbits are kind of the everyday man or even maybe like the everyday kind of Englishman for him, that it's kind of their ability to not be quenched and to kind of just keep on keeping on and do what they need to that really holds more power than these great forces think. And so I wanted to just kind of spotlight that moment as going to early kind of flicker towards a, a very kind oh, that's of good. I, theme in the Lord of the Rings. I would, uh, first of all, I would love all the connections to the Lord of the Rings because I think it'll be easy to kind of contextualize everything. But also I like that, that idea of that, you know, even the smallest man can play a big part in, in the world. It kind of puts meaning behind everything. Yes. But Raleigh, I think we'll run enough time for this section unless you have any final questions. And so I, so I thought I would um, quickly just say one last thing and then go yeah. to a little preview of the next show. And this is at the very end of the section that we read, the Aulalindalei. And it says, and thus was the habitation of the children of Iluvatar, who are again the elves and men, established at the last in the deeps of time and amidst the innumerable stars. And the reason that this is important is because this last word, stars, which ends this kind of creation myth for Tolkien. And the stars, as we will see, are a very important motif that's going to carry through the whole thing. In fact, one of the Valar is basically the god of stars. That's like her jam. But also, by ending the section with stars, I think one of the Tolkien's, whichever it was, was trying to get us to think of another text that ends all of its sections with the word stars, and that is Dante's Divine Comedy. So Dante, if you remember, was lived in about the year 1300, wrote Dante's Inferno, um, and then Purgatorio and Paradiso, which is basically about his spiritual, as well as kind of in the story, physical journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. And each three of those sections ends with, with stele, which is the Italian word for stars, and it's kind of a famous ending to those things. And I think that what the, one of these Tolkien's, or maybe both, is trying to flick at here is just that this thing we're about to undertake in the story, and also you and I together, Raleigh, this is going to be a journey through heaven and hell and back again and across every other place of existence that we have in the Middle Earth cosmos. So it's a bit of a buckle up kind of. Well, I'm certainly ready for this ride. Okay, me too. As we said, oh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing, especially when there's nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, next time we're going to read the Valaquenta, which again is going to go through the gods. I'm charging you, Raleigh, with picking your fav maybe your favorite male Valar and favorite female okay. Vala, and we can talk about why. And also Raleigh and I are going to try to simplify the list of the Valar by creating what we're calling the Arda or Earth Corporation and assigning each of these gods a role within our corporation. So for instance, Manway 
who we'll find is the god of the air and far-seeing and thinking ahead and the sky and eagles. We're going to call him like our chief executive and see how everybody else lines up under him. And then hopefully that will help us keep us straight throughout and think about the motivations and why the gods are doing the thing that they are. So anyway, all, all that and more when the uh, Quenya questions in quarantine continues. See you next time. Thank you.